I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, did Justin Trudeau make the right call not to trade the Huawei CFO for the two Michaels? Most say yes. What's the difference between COVID-19 and the seasonal flu? Another Black Lives Matter gathering in Hamilton. We have all the details. It's coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, he is with us now and has penned a column for us, uh, Global News. It's on the website or the CHML website. Trudeau is right to reject a call uh, to swap uh, for the two Michaels. Let's bring in Matthew Fisher now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, and thanks for leading in with a Johnny Cash song. He's just about my favorite, along with Gordon Lightfoot. You know, it's fascinating at the latter part of his career how we started to cover other people's music like that. It's uh, it's 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 interesting. All right, let's talk about the prime minister. Why the change of tone from the prime minister? Why is this happening now, Matthew? Well, I think he was forced into it. Um, now, to be fair to the prime minister, uh, that has been Canada's policy for yep. some time, and he took up that policy. That is, that we do not negotiate with people, groups, governments, God forbid, who go out and kidnap people. Uh, But he has been very quiet on many aspects of the Meng to Michaels controversy. Uh, And I think, and quite a few others, others think that that's because his government still dreams crazily of some kind of big trade deal with the Chinese that never going to happen but about this i think he has been consistent and he had to speak this week because there was a provocation uh the families spoke about this in what seemed to be an orchestrated fashion suddenly that they wanted their kin back i'm sure they wanted them back all the time and we must feel for them but they've not gone public and suddenly they go public at the same time as uh, several prominent Canadians do. And this is followed uh, two days later, three days later, by uh, what is effectively a petition to the Prime Minister by 19 worthy, well-known Canadians uh, demanding that Canada conduct this prison swap. Uh, It sure looks like some kind of coordinated campaign. And... uh, When you watch the Prime Minister speaking yesterday, it seems to me he was irritated, Scott. Uh, And I think his irritation was about how dare they that they interfere. Not the families. They, of course, have a right to say something. But the other people who uh, have said, you have to do this, uh, that they got involved, uh, I think bothered him because really that's, That is the job of the government. We elect governments to decide these things. And when a slew of prominent Canadians, most of them attached to the Liberal and Conservative Party, say this, uh, it is uh, interference. So why, again, this is always, as you mentioned, this has been always the position of the government. Uh, this was discussed early on when this all went down and was pretty much tossed out for all of the same reasons. It's setting a terrible precedence. So what is behind this group of people 
uh, now all of a sudden uh, piling on the prime minister in this way. They obviously know the ramifications, just as you've explained, about doing this. Why would this prominent group say such a thing? And, 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 and is it a possibility? We've heard so much about how the United Front is persuading the elite. Is that what, is that what, happen, is that what is happening here? Do these people have interest in China? Well, I'm not sure whether any of those who actually signed this letter do. I, I don't know their personal business arrangements at all. Uh, I certainly know that some of them do not. Uh, and then some of them I, I don't really know. But we do know that others, such as Jean Cadetien and John Manley, uh, former prominent liberal politicians, to say the least, uh, have had business arrangements with China. We don't know what they are, but they have encouraged uh, business uh, with China. And um, one reason why this seems orchestrated to somebody obviously outside the bubble, I'm not privy to government information, I'm not privy to any information by those who wrote this petition or signed it, but it seems to me that when this happens and then almost instantly a senior spokesman for the foreign ministry in China for the first time ever out of Beijing acknowledges that they did indeed kidnap those guys for exactly this purpose, to do a trade deal. Well, uh, this to me is outrageous. The timing kind of stinks. And... Uh, puts the Prime Minister and the Government of Canada in an even more invidious position because now we've got China saying, yeah, we do kidnap people for this. We all know China does this, but we don't have them saying it. And so I think it escalates it, and I think it gives the Prime Minister one more solid reason to rebuff these overtures. And... uh, Uh, You know, he has been consistent. Uh, A friend of mine was beheaded in the Philippines, John Ridsdale, four years ago uh, by Abu Saif terrorist group. And at that time, at a a retreat for the cabinet in Banff, Alberta, Trudeau said, we will not negotiate. Uh, Very soon after that, uh, Ridsdale and another Canadian, Robert Hall, were beheaded. And I really felt that. I felt terribly in the situation because I liked John Ridsdale very much. Uh, He was a good guy. I feel for his family. But you have to have principles about this. It's been my policy for a long time. I couldn't change it. Well, it's been the prime minister's policy for a long time, too. He could not change it. Is this, and speaking of this group that signed this letter, is this anti-Donald Trump sentiment? Is it just, you know, anti-American, um, again, not realizing that he won't be there forever? Well, what I think some Canadians don't get, these people should be sophisticated enough to get it, but yeah. on this, we can say whatever we want about Donald Trump, but on this specific issue, Huawei, China, the, there is bipartisan support. In the United States, it's famous now for how the Democrats and Republicans cannot agree on anything. But, for example, the rebuke of, to China over Hong Kong, 
I think the vote in the Senate was 99 to 1 uh, to rebuke China. The Republicans and the Democrats take a very hard line in this. Also, what Ms. Meng is alleged to have done was to do business surreptitiously, furtively with Iran. Well, Iran is a white-hot topic for any American politician. Their opposition to Iran is well-known and historic. So again, this isn't Donald Trump. Far too often in Canada, we want to blame everything on Donald Trump. And I think his presidency is is a train wreck. I'm not wanting to in any way apologize for him Mm -hmm. or defend him. But you cannot blame him for everything. Uh, so uh, considering how the prime minister has doubled down and respects these people's opinion, but strongly disagrees, uh, and, and this has all been digested for 24 hours or so, uh, how does this group look now? Well, I think is this ga- is this movement gaining steam to let her go? Well, I know some of them. I've been in touch with some of them in the last 24 hours. They thought there was a chance this gambit would work. I don't doubt their conviction that they think uh, that this is a deal worth doing. I disagree with them, but uh, I don't think they have a strategy beyond this because I can't imagine what it would be. They've played their card. The government has rejected it. China has played its card, uh, admitting the kidnapping, which I think digs a deeper hole for themselves. Uh, But uh, that, too, has been rejected. And don't forget, a couple of weeks ago, just before it was decided by the court in British Columbia that there were grounds to proceed with extradition because the charge against Meng in the United States would have been a valid charge in Canada. It wasn't whether she was innocent or guilty, but but the charge itself could have been laid. Two days before that happened, or three days before that happened, you may recall that triumphant photograph of Meng in front of the British Columbia court, Mm -hmm. sort of thumbs up, and it was with a group of Chinese people, and and she was extremely happy. She looked ecstatic. Well, that is an example, I think, of how China misread the Canadian courts. I think they thought they were just about to win because their lobbying campaign was working. Well, again this week, I think they have found that they have screwed up. Now, they never admit that they've screwed up. Uh, Lots of governments don't. We see this in Canada. We see this everywhere. But uh, on this, on what is almost a life and death issue, because these gentlemen are likely to be sentenced to prison for a term of 20 years or something like that, and uh, that takes them into their old age, uh, China has misplayed it. And uh, it has with all kinds of countries. It is in a mess now with India, Australia, the European Union, Uh, has really turned against them. There are big issues with Sweden. And what did China do this week, Scott? They, when none of this worked, then they, yesterday, the Global Times, which is a mouthpiece for the Communist Party owned by them, the the newspaper had a a story in which somebody is quoted uh, as saying that uh, they, if Canada doesn't release Meng, there will be more sanctions against Canada on our lobster industry. And that lobster industry is worth $467 million a year. Uh, The Maritimes 
is in a rough spot economically. It very often is, even more so now with coronavirus. That money, of course, is a huge deal to them. But uh, they don't want to sign things that they will be responsible. And the ludicrous excuse is that our lobsters carry coronavirus. Give me a break. Are Canadians safe in China, Matthew? I don't think so. I do. How can they be? Uh, China can easily do this again. If a two-for-one swap wasn't worth it, maybe a five-for-one or a ten-for-one. I I spoke to a friend of mine who lives in Beijing, who's in Vancouver right now, and he hasn't gone back because of the coronavirus, but he said the moment I'm able to fly back there, I'm going back there. And I said, give your head a shake. And he said, oh, I know, I know it might happen, but I really have to go back there. Uh, And uh, I don't understand this, but... Some people still think this way. I know Canadian universities, most of them, maybe all of them, and all their people from going there to recruit Chinese students, to look for Chinese research money. All of that stuff stopped within a week or two of uh, uh, the Meng extradition and the Chinese reaction kidnapping the two Canadians uh, about 18 months ago. So none of those people are going. They recognize what a problem it is. A Canadian business group, though, a big one, went to China just about three months ago, went to, went to Shanghai, and we're, we're looking for major business opportunities. I think we have to look somewhere else. There are so many other opportunities. Japan and South Korea want to do much more trade with us. There's Vietnam, there's Malaysia, there's Indonesia, uh, 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 India badly wants to do a deal. I'm told that they want to do about $20 billion a year more business with Canada than they do now, and Canada Mm. hasn't even talked to them. So we do have some options in multilateralism, Scott, too. If we get in with all those countries that don't like China now, that is the way we can get China to behave properly. We can't do it alone. Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News. And, of course, you can read his latest column on our website. Matthew, as always, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating information. Be well. Thank you. I enjoy speaking with you. I'll be down in your region next week. I look forward to seeing Hamilton. I'm breaking out of my enclave here in the Ottawa Valley. You're welcome with open arms. Thank you, Matthew. Oh, no, it is. Oh, that's right. Yes. From, from of course, two meter distance, you know, a, a, a sort of an air hug, uh, uh, you know, lots of chatter in regard. And we will certainly as uh, we get out of this pandemic and, and get out of the backside of this curve and, and then hopefully a vaccination, uh, we'll get to uh, go back and look at everything that we've done, see what worked, see what hasn't worked. Um, many have talked about the aid that has been provided by the government and it flying out the door and not really having any accountability for any of that. Uh, so interesting, uh, outgoing conservative leader Andrew Scheer has brought forward an idea to uh, get Canadians back to work, uh, almost like a back-to-work bonus. To talk more about all of this, Pierre Polyev is with us, MP for Carleton, Shadow Minister for Finance, and he is with us now. Pierre, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, likewise. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, Pierre, before we get to uh, this back-to-work bonus idea, I, I know you, it's not your portfolio, but just want to get your thoughts on uh, the recent developments in regard to the two Michaels in, in China and the Huawei CFO case. 
Uh, obviously, uh, over time, we've seen uh, eventually the charges uh, formalized against the two Michaels, and now a group of prominent Canadians have come up with a letter saying that uh, the Prime Minister should uh, do some sort of hostage diplomacy here and, and swap to get uh, to get them back. He has come out firmly against that, and probably the strongest language uh, language we have heard from the Prime Minister on China. What are your thoughts on on how all this has? Uh, has that all that has uh, transpired and and this group of prominent Canadians that were asking for a release yeah I don't believe in a prisoner exchange uh, all that would do is encourage countries who have um, prized citizens uh, arrested in Canada for uh, offenses they may have committed to kidnap Canadians and then make the same demand so uh, we cannot uh, we cannot um, engage in hostage diplomacy. We have a justice system. Miss um, Mung has been charged. Um, let the justice system determine her guilt or innocence. And uh, if she's guilty, she'll serve. She'll be uh, she'll be extradited. And if not, she will uh, be released. Uh, but uh, it's not for politicians to uh, to trade uh, prisoners um, and interfere in our system. This was certainly something that was chatted about way back when at the beginning of all of this and was pretty much dismissed for the reasons that you have just given. Surprised that this group has sent this at this time. I was a little surprised. There was obviously a very well-coordinated campaign that occurred last week by uh, supporters of this idea. Uh, It was coordinated, timed, and rolled out uh, with meticulous care. Um, And uh, you really have to wonder how such a, a campaign could have been so well orchestrated. Um, but I, I have to say I'm happy with the Prime Minister's response. I don't often give him credit, but I think he took the right stance in saying that we have an independent judicial system that will determine uh, the fate of anyone who's accused or sent uh, or, 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 uh, or headed for extradition, and uh, politicians stay the heck out of the way while the, uh, the judges and uh, the prosecutors and defense uh, thrash out the case. Uh, last question on this, Pierre. Why do you think this is happening now? Why this stance now? I don't know. Uh, I uh, I don't know. All I can say is that there seems to be a very well-coordinated, well-organized campaign uh, to orchestrate uh, the release of Ms. Mung, um, and uh, I'm surprised by the number of people who were willing to participate in that. All right, let's talk about what Andrew Scheer uh, introduced, uh, back-to-work bonus. Elaborate on this. Well, the problem that Mr. Scheer is trying to solve is that the government is actually punishing CERB recipients for working. If you're on the CERB and you work more than a, you earn more than $1,000, you lose your $2,000 benefit. You know, nobody in their right mind would work to earn $1,000 and then lose 2000 That's like a 200% tax rate. Uh, so uh, what Mr. Shear is proposing is sort of a back-to-work bonus. And then it would work like this. For everyone who earns less than $1,000 while on CERB, nothing would change. But if you earn more than $1,000, uh, your CERB would be reduced by just 50 cents for every dollar earned. In other words, if you earned $1,001, you would lose 50 cents of your CERB. If you earn uh, $1,010, you lose $5 of your serve. 
Uh, and all of this would be cleared up at your tax time. You wouldn't have to daily register all of your earnings with the government. You'd just simply keep collecting the CERB and at tax time report your earnings during the period while you were on CERB. And, and, the, and CRA would uh, clear it up, just like they do already with uh, countless means-tested support programs uh, like OAS for seniors or the child benefit for parents. Uh, and uh, so basically the rule would be the more you earn, the better off you are. And the government is not going to punish you for taking that extra shift. At 50 cents on the dollar, is that enough incentive to get Canadians back to work? Well, that's a good question. Uh, But we can we can be sure that it's better than what we have now, which is that if you earn more than a thousand, you go from the serve to the curb, uh, which we all agree is a is a uh, strange way to treat people for working. You want to encourage work. And so. Um, EI has a 50 cent on the dollar phase out. So if you're collecting EI and you get a job offer for, say, 10 hours a week, we don't kick you off EI. We say, great, go take the work and you will reduce your EI by only 50 cents for every dollar you earn. In other words, you're always 50 cents better off. Uh, And that has incentivized a lot of people to earn extra income while they are on EI. And I, I think we should just take that same policy and use it for the CERB to encourage more people to work. Let our small businesses attract more workers as they re- reopen uh, in the post-COVID economy. Um, uh, many have said that this aid package encourages those to stay at home more than get back to work. That being said, is, is that not a good position during a pandemic? Or have we got to the point where that time has passed and now it's recovery time? Well, we, we know that certain workplaces are open, partly or fully, and many of the employers have complained that they can't staff these positions um, because a lot of their workers are, can't afford to lose the CERB. They are uh, in a position where if they come back, they earn 1200 bucks, they lose $2,000, and they might even lose their job because this post-COVID recovery is so fragile, and then they're out, really out of luck because they've got no CERB and no income. So basically what we're saying is let people go into the world, earn more income, and let's say that every extra hour you work makes you better off. Very similar to uh, EI, as you mentioned. Where is this going? Will, do, do you see this having teeth, uh, or do, is this just an, an obvious next step uh, as a transition? Well, I think that the government will be open to it because – They've introduced a bill, Bill C-17, which would penalize people for defrauding the CERB or uh, refusing to take jobs offered them while they're on the CERB. I think th- those are th- that's the stick approach. I think uh, they should be open to the carrot approach, which is to say, like I said, if you if you go out and work, we'll make sure that you're always better off, that you keep more than you lose. And uh, you can earn your way off the CERB and, and always uh, keep more in your pocket as a result. This seems like the kind of idea that should attract support from everyone, from the far left to the far right. We all agree that work is good. Uh, we all want our working class people better off. Here's a policy that will do both. Pierre Polyev has been with us, MP for Carleton, Shadow Minister for Finance. Pierre, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good to be with you. Thank you. It is 217. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Quick break here. We're coming back. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Allison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Services, or Sciences rather, uh, Professor of Public Health Services and Professor of Public Health Sciences, uh, Dal Atlanta School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Allison, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. I hope you are too. Uh, well, I feel a little irresponsible by talking about misinformation and then spreading some. Uh, let's get let's get to that right off the top. What is the situation with testing? And from what I'm hearing from health experts, the more testing, the better. Absolutely. Um, and the, the idea that testing is actually causing a sort of inflated sense of where we're at in controlling the pandemic is complete nonsense. We We can't know unless we test people what what we're looking at in the community and and in various you know congregate living centers so without that information we're, we're really flying blind and how difficult or frustrating is it for you as a, a health professional a professor and 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 seeing misinformation coming from such high places well i guess my advice to anybody is to just ignore the information that comes from south of the border, for the most part, it's it's generally if it's coming from from the uh, Oval Office, it's usually flawed information and possibly even meant to confuse and distract from other political issues. So, um, you know, it's it's frustrating and it's uh, you know it's a it's a problem that we're going to have to live with for a long time. So I think we just need to figure out how to get better at communicating. Um, what what we know and what we don't know about this pandemic to the public. All right, your thoughts on where we are now, 111 new cases uh, in Ontario in the last 24 hours. That's the lowest since March 25th. Your thoughts on how we have handled this? Well, I think that, you know, we, we did what we needed to do to to manage the situation, given that we were caught basically unprepared and, and without the necessary resources. So, you know, I think we've we've done a good job under the circumstances, but I think, you know, when we look back on this, we're going to be asking why the public was asked to do the job of public health, um, which, you know, was the direct result of years and years of, of defunding public health in Ontario. Um, as far as uh, where this virus is and, and the time of the year, we're coming uh, into the summer, uh, there's been lots of, uh, of of talk about what happens when the seasonal flu hits in the fall and these two viruses uh, were presented with them at once. Elaborate on that and, and perhaps the difference between the two. Sure. So I'll start with your last question. Influenza is a different virus. It is about half as lethal as we understand COVID-19 to be. And it's seasonal, so it's not, uh, you know, it's not with us all the year round the way it looks like COVID-19 is. So there's some very significant differences in those two viruses, and there's differences in the way that we calculate the rate for those things. Um, you know, with COVID, we, we have much uh, different ways of determining, you know, the level of an infection and the case fatality rate. So there's some very significant differences. Having said that, they they are, you know, they're both respiratory illnesses and when we have to deal with both of them at the same time in going into flu season in the fall, uh, it, it has the potential to be really uh, disastrous for, for us if we haven't got COVID under control. 
and it can also just lead to some confusion over, you know, what, what do I have? You know, is this the flu? Is this COVID? What, how should I behave? That's an interesting uh, point that I haven't thought of before. Once the fall does roll around and we see, we see the seasonal influenza start up, will there be confusion as to whether you have uh, the seasonal flu or COVID-19? And what sort of challenge does that present? I mean, at the end of the day, we, we don't really want to be spreading either of those things. So we may actually see uh, influenza transmission go down because people are taking other precautions, or we hope they are. Um, but it has the, the potential, too, to let people think that they may have had COVID and are now immune, which doesn't necessarily follow anyway. But, you know, there's, it, it's worth thinking about in advance about how to... Um, create public messages that are less confusing and and that can, you know, we need to be prepared for a strategy for determining, you know, what what it is. Are we going to continue just testing for COVID or maybe we'll also uh, up the testing for, for laboratory confirmed cases of influenza as well? That might be another option. Is there any way, and and sorry if this seems like a layman question, but is there any way that these two viruses can sort of come together or mutate, or is it just a case of having two of them at once, which just is obviously a a greater stress to the healthcare system? Well, I don't think there's a a risk of them sort of mutating mutually into a super virus or something, magically combining. But, you know, certainly if you have one and then you get the other, you're probably going to be in really bad shape. So, um, the the impact of having influenza circulating at the same time um, could be that, you know, we're seeing much more um, comorbidity where people have both diseases at the same time. And so that, that would also be a big concern for, for people who are vulnerable. And we have to remember, too, that people who are vulnerable, most vulnerable to influenza are not the same. So you know, children are actually quite vulnerable to influenza, whereas it doesn't look like they are with COVID. Hmm. Uh, how many die uh, from the seasonal flu a year in Canada? That's a good question. So I think usually we see about um, 3,500 deaths um, hmm. since March, I guess you could say. That's what we're looking at. Um, and that compares to 8,500 of, of COVID since March in Canada. So that's that's a bit different. Uh, so uh, are you greatly concerned as the flu season arrives and we have to deal with two of these? I think it's definitely a concern. Um, I, I think that, you know, if we can keep behaving the way that we are now and, and being careful about um, respiratory hygiene and, you know, hopefully people will realize that it's really important to get the, the flu shot this year. Um, just because it will lessen the stress on the healthcare sector, but also it'll it'll be less confusing. So if you do get a respiratory illness, uh, you know we know that it's probably more likely to be something other than influenza if we have a good match this year. Uh, I've asked this before, and and I'll ask again. Um, uh, when the annual flu shot comes out. Uh, and, and we 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 go for that every year, and we understand it only represents a certain amount because these things do change. Uh, it may not completely cover you. Uh, once there is a vaccine for uh, COVID nineteen, is it would it be like a completely separate vaccine? It's completely separate from a flu shot. It will never be a part of a flu shot. 
That's a great question. I mean, I think we don't know yet because we don't know what type of vaccine COVID-19 vaccine will be. Um, There there are different different live virus vaccines. There's killed virus vaccines. There's ones with adjuvants. There's ones without. And, you know, there are nasal sprays and there are injections. So we don't really know yet. And um, not being a immunologist, I, I really don't know what the likelihood of being able to combine those two vaccines would be. Um, but but certainly there's a, some issues too around you know diverting some of our vaccine manufacturing capacity to produce a COVID vaccine may impact our availability of the influenza vaccine as well. So that's something else to watch for. Uh, many are talking and fearful of a second wave. Uh, obviously, don't we're not sure how that's going to uh, present itself. Whether it will be uh, a wave per se or little hot spots uh, here and there. Uh, as I mentioned, heading into the summer months, uh, we're certainly at uh, an all-time low for cases in Canada. Uh, I know we're not out of the woods. What message do you want to send to the public out there about where we are and and still these precautions? Right. Well, I think we're starting to realize that there are other health needs that people have that need to be looked at, like uh, the mental health of our children who've been separated from friends for months, even ourselves in that regard there are there are other things to balance here and as the case rate goes down we can be optimistic about our ability to to uh, expand our our contacts with other people but we have to be careful to remember that how quickly and exponentially these things um, can get out of control so you know I think a second wave is most likely due to people becoming complacent rather than having a virus mutation and you know, we're, we're dealing with a whole other situation. So, you know, I think there's, there's some reason to still be cautious while, you know, people are going to have to determine, you know, to what extent can we continue to prioritize keeping this virus under check uh, and, you know, what that, what that has uh, an impact on for other, other kinds of health, like addictions, mental health, um, even just primary care, other, other, parts of the healthcare system that have been shut down for so long, um, you know, it, it really, we can't continue this way. Uh, I know this is an impossible question because nobody has a crystal ball, but your thoughts on where we might be one month from now, two months from now, as we approach uh, the fall season, do you think we're going to continue to see a downward trend? What are your, what's your thoughts? I think a lot of that will depend on, what uh, you know, how quickly we decide to reopen things, and how porous our border is with the U.S. Um, certainly, we've got a preview of what happens if we just uh, take our throw caution to the wind, and you know, mm-hmm. we can see in jurisdictions in the U.S. where they reopened quickly uh, that they're now experiencing some some out of control situations in places like Texas. So when they've had to put the brakes on reopening again, so you know, we've got. A preview to the south of what happens if we if we do this the wrong way. So hopefully we can look forward to to learning from those experiences and get it right up here. Allison Thompson has been with us, associate professor of pharmaceutical sciences, public health services, and public health sciences at the Dalla Atlanta School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Allison, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This weekend, another Black Lives Matter march will be held in Hamilton. Let's bring in Amani Williams, organizer. She is with us now. Amani, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me again. 
So first of all, give us the details and the logistics of this event. Okay, so it is tomorrow. Um, it's going to be at 2 p.m. at Dundurn Park, and we'll be starting um, just to um, give out like posters and stuff like that at the rally. Um, we're also going to have waters and everything set up there early. Um, and then we will be marching around 2.30 to City Hall. And then at City Hall, we'll be pretty much doing exactly what we did last time. But, of course, um, different types of speeches, different songs, different poems, and everything like that. So it's going to be pretty amazing. What do you want Hamiltonians to take from this? I want Hamiltonians to take that um, education doesn't stop. Knowing about what goes on and the discriminatory ways of others doesn't stop. Um, when it stops trending online. So um, I just want to keep it going, keep the momentum going. I have a lot of supporters behind me, and I have a lot of Hamiltonians that um, want to see this keep going. So it's very, very inspiring, um, and we're not going to stop anytime soon, for sure. We've been talking a lot. I don't know how, you, how much you followed the Bubba Wallace case. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a motorhead, so anything racing always gets my attention. But I've been following this case quite closely about the noose in the garage in Alabama. And um, uh, I, I've talked a lot about it, and I'm uh, I'm incredibly disappointed about some of the email that I have received and people trying to justify this. And for those that don't know the story, um, uh, last week in Talladega, Alabama, uh, Bubba Wallace's car uh, in the garage and the rope that's used to pull down the garage is fashioned in uh, in the shape of a noose. And uh, everybody investigated, and what they realized was that the noose had been there a year before, so therefore no hate crime. And then it was as if after this massive reaction to support Bubba Wallace, now all of a sudden, well, it wasn't a hate crime, and everybody, and, and some almost felt vindicated. It's not a hate crime, yeah. it's not a hate crime. And my reaction was, there is still a noose hanging in a garage in Alabama in a professional sports uh, facility. How is this okay? Uh, how do you explain, and maybe it's best for me too, because I'm the white guy here, but how do you explain the email I'm getting and people trying to justify this? Um, I just feel like for a lot of people, it's easier to like deny racism and deny like something so blatant. Like even today, um, in like what's going on, there's like multiple hangs, hangings of black people and each and every one. They're yeah. trying to say it's a suicide. They're not even trying to investigate to see, you know, maybe it was a hate crime. Maybe somebody did lynch these people. Hello, we're in the middle of a revolution. It's not, you know, something completely uncommon. But it, like I said, you know, it's whatever makes people comfortable. And it's not, it's very uncomfortable for some people to realize that people are very blatantly racist. So um, I think it's just about the comfort zone. And at the end of the day, we need to get up out of there because, you know, we were just happen in the comfort zone. We were talking about, uh, last time we were talking, we were talking about how um, uh, people perceive this and white uh, privilege and systematic racism uh, and, and such. And, you know, again, uh, and it was great to hear the premier come out and say that there is uh, systematic racism in institutions, including the police uh, yeah. in Ontario. Um But, you know, how, again, if anybody wants to know if there is, I can send them a whole pile of emails. Is, is that not what I'm receiving? Is that not systematic racism? People trying to make an excuse for something that seems quite obvious? Isn't that Definitely. it? Definitely. That's literally exactly it. Um, it's just basic, com basically complacency. We've all become complacent to such blatant disrespect, blatant racism, um, discriminatory ways. Like, we just have to wake up basically. So that's the way that we dismantle the system so that systematic racism cannot continue to happen. 
we have to have these uncomfortable conversations. We have to. How do we make sure this, because again, I'm, I'm getting some pretty vile stuff. How do we keep this in the middle, in the center where we're, we're uh, getting the issues out, we're making this people aware of this, but not taking it to the extremes? And, and uh, I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly or not, but um, it, it seems there's a lot, a lot of people hijacking this movement for their own interests. How do you keep this on point? Um, so I would say to definitely just stay connected to um, organizers of rallies that you've been to and you can see that are genuine. Um, for me personally, I'm speaking from my own experience. I'm speaking for a lot of people that are maybe afraid to speak. Um, I'm giving a platform to not only the black community, but also the indigenous community to step forward and speak about their um, issues and their problems that they're having in their community. So at the end of the day, it's like, you can see for yourself who's genuine and they'll stick around. If you're not genuine, then you won't because this is a lot of work. You know what I'm saying? And, and I'm passionate about it and the fire's going and that's why I personally am not going to let this stop. It can't stop. Many people think I'm being divisive, fueling the fire in one of the notes by saying this. Um, uh, how, how do we have this discussion and keep it about unity, bringing people together, as opposed to one side versus the other? So for me, I see it more as racists versus those who are not racist, right? So That's a good if point. If you see it that way, then it's like, it's not a black and white issue. It's, are you racist or are you not? Like, like we said last time, you can be silently anti-racist, but that is violent because it's not helping out my community when you're just standing there if Tom or John or whoever is speaking, you know, in a way that they shouldn't be speaking, you have to call them out. You have to ha- be uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable, that's when changes are happening. So we have to be uncomfortable. Um, some may point to the militant side of Black Lives Matter. What do you say to that? I say this. Um, you can't really talk about one sector of a whole movement and and then call them radical or call them militant right if we're going to be if we if we did that to the police um i'm not even going to go there but i'm just saying you know what i'm saying like when we talk about the police you guys don't want to talk about them generally you want to say oh stick it's just that one police so let's let's do the same for every other movement at the end of the day the message is clear we want you guys to stop killing us we want to be seen as equal we are tired of being oppressed and if you can't see that message, then that just shows that you're part of the problem. And, you know, people, and we've talked a lot about systemic racism, not to, to get on this again, but, uh, you know, within, not only within the police service, but within society and within all mm-hmm. institutions. And, you know, the excuse comes out, well, there's bad apples in everything, of course, which there is. There's the instigator, mm-hmm. right? But then there's mm-hmm. the other people that kind of stand around and don't do anything when something happens. And, you know, so, for example, there might be one bad officer that goes in and does something, but are the three yeah. or four or five that are around there and know something that, that doesn't make the news, uh, you know, are they doing something about it? And again, there's the systemic racism. Um, exactly. How and, and, you know, I'm a I'm a white person who's who for somehow some reason that eight minute, 46 second video made a massive impact on me are are more getting that message and again i love how you've not made it a black white issue but Mm -hmm. either you're racist or you're not it's it's a human rights issue uh are you are you feeling a different feeling this time 
Oh, 100%. Um, just the support I'm getting in our group for the March for Black Lives. Um, just anybody that just reaches out to us through Instagram. Um, it's a lot of people that aren't black. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a lot of non-black people that are saying, hey, I'm done being silent. Um, I was always by you, but, you know, my sympathy, I've noticed that that's not enough. So I'm going to use my privilege and my voice to make sure that you guys have a platform that people listen to. And I'm, I feel empowered by that. I'm happy. I'm over happy um, that people are finally opening their eyes that, hey, your voice, we were all born with one. We need to start using it. All right, let's talk about the, the rally again. And and are you concerned that it does become the cause is lost and it becomes a screaming match? I mean, I know the last few have been pretty good that way. Your thoughts? Um, I'm not worried. Um, March for Black Lives, is, it was made very organically. So I, I don't have any interest in, you know, censoring what anyone has to say. At the end of the day, the black experience is a very complex one. And that's why I include as many voices as possible um, to speak on their personal experiences. If it makes you uncomfortable, like I said, that's amazing because that means changes are being made. Um, we're not we're not going to water down what we've been through. So, and I know a lot of people learn from that. So it, it just has to stay genuine that way. It's not a screaming match. We have singing, we have poems, we have different you know things that you know would touch different people. But um, definitely, we're sticking to um, being genuine and um, making sure every voice is heard, both from the black and indigenous community. All right, give us the details, the whens, the wheres, and all that stuff. Yes, so Dendron Park tomorrow at 2 p.m. Um, you Feel free to come early. We do have water set up, snacks set up. Um, by 2.30, the latest, we will be marching to City Hall. That's where we'll have our singers, our speeches, speeches sorry, our poems, everything like that will be there. We do have something secret as well um, that you'll have to see when you're there. So um, please come out, please support um, there will be no tolerance towards hate speech or disturbing the peace. So if you are for that, please stay home. Um, other than that, everybody is welcome. White, black, Indian, red, orange, and green. Please come out and support us. Amani Williams has been uh, with us, organizer of this week's uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest in Hamilton. It is Dundurn, 2 o'clock tomorrow. Amani, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well this weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in the Reverend Jim Carrier and uh, hopefully get some sort of message from Hope from his Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Jim, how are you? Well, Scott, having a rough day. It's been going on like that all week, Jimmy. It is very, very disturbing. It's disturbing to hear people try to justify this. Yeah, exactly. And with all due respect to Butch, um, I think he represents a lot of the mentality that you know, there was something that was offensive, and yet it was up to the victim to solve the problem. So it was up, you know, it was up. And the thing is, is Butch agreed it was wrong. And Butch agreed it was wrong. Exactly. He agreed it was wrong, but but the victim had to do something about it, which is, which I think kind of reflects a lot of the mentality today, where people are just kind of uh, uh, detached from the reality, and they don't really want to look deep inside themselves and say, okay, well, why am I asking Bubba to solve this problem? And that's what we need to do. I think if we really kind of stop for a minute and reflected on what's in our heart, that we may find better solutions to what's going on, better words to say and and better conversations to have around any issue, racism, uh, whatever the issue may be. So, um, yeah. But well, again, you know, 
It, it, it amazes me that, and, and I had it explained to me this way once by uh, Thai cat caretaker Bob Young. Why would you want to associate with something or uh, associate with a symbol that brings so much pain to other people, whether you get that or not? You know, I, I'm not sure why it bothers Joe so much, but man, he's really bothered. Well, yeah. take that to heart and then try to understand where Joe's coming from, as opposed to just ignoring it. Why would you want to do something that really hurts someone? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's just, um, just part of our, our fallenness our, in, in human nature is that we, we're very self-protective. Uh, we don't want to feel like we've offended anybody because it reflects on, on how we view ourselves. And, and so we kind of uh, close ourselves off to being in any way responsible for even even responsible for what other people do. Uh, but we're a society, we're a community, and we live together. We're surviving through this COVID thing together. We're, we're, our lives are changing. Our attitudes toward one another are changing, you know, mostly in a, in a positive way. And, and these, uh, these underlying issues are, are starting to come out. And what we need to do is carry the spirit of the COVID cooperation with us into these incidences and, and, and really understand that, that there is an openness, that we're in this together, that we come from the, we come from the same ancestor, that we're in this together. We need to open our eyes to one another, view one another as, as God created beings, that we're equals. And then, and then just kind of deal, start from there, start from there and then, then begin dialogue and say, I get you. I know what you're saying. I, you know, was it wrong for me to do this? Well, I don't think it was wrong for me to do this, but at least get the dialogue going so we can better understand one another and where one another is coming from. So you're absolutely right. Well said. The Reverend Jim Carrier and, of course, uh, uh, St. Catherine, uh, sorry, Good Shepherd, sorry, Jim, Good Shepherd Church in St. Catherine's, the Reverend Jim Carrier. Make sure you check out his services on his Facebook page. Jim, as always, uh, words of wisdom. Thanks so much, and you and the family be well this weekend. Deep breath, Scott, and take the rest of the (laughs) week. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.